Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction and whatever else we feel like talking about. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm the author of a new book about recent discoveries in archaeology called Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm the author of the recent young adult space fantasy novel, Victories Greater Than Death, (laughs) and also the upcoming book, Never Say You Can't Survive. I'm so excited about that book, and we'll be talking about it in a later episode. But this episode, we are going to be talking about the thorny topic of gender essentialism. What the heck is it? Why are people talking about it? How does it show up in science fiction? And also, how has it shaped science? So get ready to go down the rabbit hole of what men are, what women are, and if you don't fit those categories, screw you. by defining our terms. Charlie Jane, what the heck is gender essentialism? So I found an interview with Julia Serrano, the author of the amazing book Whipping Girl and a bunch of other incredible books, where she was asked to define gender essentialism. And here's what she said. Gender essentialism is the idea that there are innate characteristics which all men share with each other and innate characteristics that all women share with each other. And it leads to ideas that men are naturally aggressive or that women are naturally nurturing and so on. And those ideas erase gender diversity, which I think she covers a lot of ground there. And I'm glad that she gets to the thing about like how not only is this kind of forcing people into these stereotyped roles, but also it kind of like erases like real diversity of like different ways to be a man and a woman, but also different ways to be something other than a man or a woman. Basically, the whole variety of human nature, kind of. Yeah, exactly. Like all the things that happen in between immutable categories that are just sort of invented. (laughs) So where does this even come from? Like we're all familiar with the idea of gender stereotypes. We've all grown up with Mm -hmm. them and we were surrounded by them. But where does this idea come from that it's something like built into us almost like spiritually? At its foundation, this is part of like our rigid gender roles in general, and they're part of it's part of the logic behind our kind of oppressive system that tries to force us all into boxes. People usually point to Plato as like the father of gender essentialism. Uh, I love blaming Plato for everything. I mean, like you know, all of Western culture was just screwed up by Plato. <laughs> really was kind of. I mean, he had a lot of really weird ideas about democracy, about society, about women in general. Like he was kind mm-hmm. of a he was not he was not always the best an all purpose crank so, you know so but anyway plato basically had this idea that everyone and everything has an essence that makes it what it is so that there's like an essence an essence of men an essence of women and that you know we have to be kind of close to the platonic ideal of of those gender roles but you know obviously it's come a long way since then mhm it has did he believe that these essences were just part of living things or did like everything have an essence everything had an essence so like chocolate fudge has an essence (laughs) and like i mean you know that's a good essence i mean the platonic ideal of chocolate fudge is something i would like in my mouth right now (laughs) for sure but the platonic ideal of like gender stereotypes or whatever is not something i want in my mouth or anybody's mouth ever like keep those out of your mouth 
just out. So there was actually something that changed, though, in kind of the 1980s, right? When people started talking about gender essentialism then, they weren't talking about the platonic ideal of chocolate fudge, right? Like, they were talking about something else. Yeah, they definitely were. And, you know, there was, like, the rise of evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology, which we're going to talk about later in the episode. But also there was the rise of a kind of essentialist feminism, or really kind of the surfacing of a strand in feminism that had been there since the beginning. And in the 80s and the 90s, there was a schism in feminism between essentialist feminists who believed that there were these innate characteristics that we just heard Julia Serrano talk about. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, you know, social constructivist feminists who believed that gender roles are created by society and that, you know, they are mutable and that they change over time and that they're not really tethered to, I don't know, biology or to something intrinsic to men, women, and anybody else. And, you know, obviously, I feel a lot more sympathy for the social constructivist feminists, people like, I don't know, Judith Butler. Like, yeah. you know, little side note, I feel like part of the reason I was able to transition and to kind of come into myself as a woman was because I read Judith Butler and she kind of like made me feel like it was all okay. Like I didn't have to try to embody some, you know, narrow definition of what a woman is like and that, you know, gender is always kind of a... I don't know, a performance or that gender is kind of a, a UI that we present to the world in a way, a UX. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be something that is like connected to who we were at birth or that we have to earn in some specific way. And, you know, I think that those ideas help to actually change the experience of not just like cis men and cis women, but also trans people and non-binary people who felt more free to like explore gender in different ways. It's absolutely true. I mean, when I read Judith Butler's um, first big book, which was called Gender Trouble, um, it was revolutionizing for me, too. And um, I was a grad student at Berkeley in the 90s when she came there to teach. And I actually um, took the very first seminar that she taught when she arrived. And um, I'm, I was actually an incredibly annoying student, so I apologize <laughs> for that. But it was so enlightening. Like you said, it was so great to have someone saying you know, gender is just like clothing. You know, you can put it on. You can do what you want with it. You can add a weird scarf if you want. You can wear a funny jacket. Like, those are all valid ways of experiencing gender. And, you know, she was really, she was going up against people like Catherine McQu McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin, who'd been working really hard to expand obscenity law mm -hmm. and stamp out pornography because they believed that women were essentially always going to be harmed by sexual content in media that was pornographic and that there was no shifting of that at all. And so it was a really interesting and weird time for feminism. But let's turn to science fiction and how science fiction reflected that whole debate. Science fiction has obviously always embraced gender stereotypes to some extent, especially classic science fiction like Golden Age science fiction definitely stuck close to the idea that, like, men were men and women were women and that if something different happened, it was weird and possibly alien. That might be a sign that you're really an alien or an android or, right. you know, <laughs> I don't know. A changeling. <laughs> you know, and there was obviously classic science fiction was very much dominated by cis men who we've talked in the past about John W. Campbell and his ideas of the superior man. And a lot of classic science fiction stories have a subtext of you know, men being competent and women maybe not being quite so much competent. You know, when you think about like the cold equations where there's this manly man who finds a girl who's stowed away on his spaceship and she's kind of a silly girl. But for me, for my money, 
the classic science fiction story or classic science fiction episode that really kind of like deals with essentialism or kind of champions essentialism in this really kind of like intense, brutal way is the Star Trek, the original series episode, actually the final Star Trek, the original series episode, The Turnabout Intruder. Oh, yeah. Um, which, sidebar, Annalie and I actually watched a drag performance of The Turnabout Intruder where, you know, Kirk and Spock and McCoy were played by women and that actually it added was a whole extra layer to it. <laughs> and of course, Uhura was played by a drag queen and it was lovely. In The Turnabout Intruder, there's a woman named Dr. Janice Lester who is one of Kirk's many ex-girlfriends. Like, he's always meeting his ex-girlfriends in that show for some reason. Uh-huh. And she's upset because... When they were dating, she was troubled by the fact that women are not allowed to be captains in Starfleet. What? They weren't? I never stopped you from going on with your space work. Your world of starship captains doesn't admit women. It isn't fair. No, it isn't. You punished and tortured me because of it. Kirk is like, yeah, it kind of sucks that women can't be captains, but, you know, don't take it out on me, man. It's not my fault. <laughs> and, like, you know, I don't make the rules. I just, like, benefit massively from them. And, <laughs> yeah. like, and don't you question know, them in any way at all. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of mind-blowing that, like, obviously it was the 60s, but Star Trek is supposed to represent this more progressive future. And we're getting this message that, like, in the 23rd century, we still won't let women be in charge. And, you know, I wonder what Captain Janeway thought about all that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Dr. Janice Lester basically hatches a plan to use some weird alien equipment she found to transfer her consciousness into Captain Kirk's body and his consciousness into her body so she can be the captain of the Enterprise mm -hmm. and he can be this female scientist who's just pissed off all the time. Uh-huh. And can never break through the glass ceiling of the spaceship. <laughs> Exactly. God, the Starfleet glass ceiling. It's crazy. Anyway. So where does essentialism come into that? Because for now, I'm I'm feeling really constructivist vibes here, you know, like she's kind of switching up her gender here. She's she's figuring out a way to worm her way to the top. Where does essentialism come in? So where essentialism comes in is that as soon as she's in Captain Kirk's body and William Shatner really kind of goes for it with this, Captain Kirk starts acting irrational and off the hook and drama-y and hysterical. hysterical. Hysterical, yes, exactly. Also, Thank doesn't you. he do his nails at one point? I feel like there's a scene where he's like Maybe. buffing his nails. I can't remember if that's actually in the, in the actual episode or if they just added that to the drag <laughs> version. <laughs> it might have only been in the drag version, I have yeah. to tell you. Okay. But yeah, Listeners, so, let us know. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to go back and... Oh, God. We're Do not we, going to rewatch that. We're not going to rewatch that episode. No. But basically, Captain Kirk... I've seen the episode like four or five times over the years. Captain Kirk starts acting very irrational and very kind of like, I'm Captain Kirk. Why won't you believe me? And just like starts kind of having a hissy fit. Uh-huh. And again, William Shatner really just goes way over the top with this because it's William Shatner. And meanwhile, the Kirk who is trapped in like Janice Lester's body starts being more rational and more kind of like, you know, sensible and trying to reason with people. Mm. And that's how Captain Kirk gets his body back in the end is by proving to his friends through his steadiness and his use of reason that he's the real Captain Kirk, even though he's in this other body. And even though in other episodes, of course, Captain Kirk is like a giant baby who punches things, but okay. <laughs> but he's a manly baby. Right, Emily. right, right. He's like, he gets angry. He's he gets righteous. He's, he is a rational, angry baby. Yeah. And so the turnabout intruder ends up by kind of telling you that this rule against 
women being Starfleet captains is a good rule because look what happens when a woman gets to be in charge. Everything just goes to hell. She starts just like janking everything up with her lady feelings mm-hmm. and her lady bits and everything. And like, basically, I feel like it's a very conservative episode, which is, you know, even for the 60s, it's weird for the original Star Trek to be that conservative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they do show a lot of characters who are far more, have like a lot more social authority than they did in the 1960s. Like mm-hmm. you have a black woman on the bridge and like mm-hmm. she is an officer, you know, and you have women in all kinds of positions of power, right? So it's weird that they're like, oh, but we they can't be captain, of course. You know, that's such a, a strange, you know, yeah. like artificial boundary that they've set up. So feminism went through this phase of essentialism, mm-hmm. like actually within the decades after this particular Star Trek episode. So do we see any feminist science fiction that's reflecting this kind of idea that there's something to women that is like, being a woman kind of affects you down to like the fundamental core of your soul or whatever. <laughs> there definitely are. I think like a lot of feminist science fiction kind of like toys with the idea that like women are nicer than men or that, you know, mm-hmm. if women were in charge, things would be better because women are nicer or more nurturing or, you know, kinder and that they would not be violent or that they would right. not. And, you know, there's a ton of novels and stories about like women-only planets or women-only societies in which that is kind of subtly reinforced. And then there's like one of my favorite science fiction novels of all time, which I'm going to just emphasize. I love this book. I adore this book. I am not going to, I'm not. This book is not canceled. (laughs) This book is definitely not canceled. I mean, you know, that's not the kind of podcast this is anyway. But The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin, every time I reread it, and I've reread it like several times, I'm struck by how even though it's this amazing thought experiment about gender in which it's like on the planet Gethin, a.k.a. winter, everybody is basically neutral, like gender neutral, like neither male nor female, neither men nor women, except for once a month when they go into Kemmer, which is this weird state where basically it's like going into heat almost. Yeah. They go into heat and then they become either men or women depending on who they're attracted to or who they're with or just the pheromones they're exposed to or, you know, their situation in general. And in a way, it's very essentialist. It's basically saying that their biology dictates everything about their gender expression and everything about themselves as a society. We don't meet any Gathenians who decide that even though most of the time they're in this neutral, non-male, non-female state, they're still going to try to identify as one or the other as like who they are or they're going to identify some other gender or they're going to kind of reject the ways that gender is constructed in their society. Pretty much everybody follows this scheme and it adheres to this kind of idea. And we do meet people called the perverts who are always, you know, one or the other. And They're always in Kemmer, basically. They're always in Kemmer. And, you know, again, it's a, it's a biological difference. Mm-hmm. Their their difference is determined biologically, and they don't seem to have any choice about it. Their gender is still not being constructed in any way beyond, like, what their biology dictates. They have no agency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think now that you're sort of talking me through the plot of Left Hand of Darkness, which I hadn't really thought of in this way before— it seems like one of the big differences between essentialism and constructivism is that in essentialism, you have no agency. You mm-hmm. are your gender. You express your gender. But in constructivism, you can you can rebuild it. 
You know, you can you can make your own gender. And, you know, if you want to make it out of silk, that's great. If you want to make it out of poop, that's fine, too. It's whatever you want it to be, basically. Yeah. And obviously, these things are complicated in the real world. Like, sure. you know, n- nobody ever feels like they entirely just make their own gender. Like, this is a thing that Judith Butler <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> kind of had to confront later in her career when she wrote Bodies That Matter. Yeah. The idea that, like, we don't just, like, decide, like, I'm going to be this gender today. It's partly about, like, our feelings about ourselves and our bodies and partly about our interactions with the world. And it's complicated. It's not something that is as easy or as playful as a lot of us would like it to be. And a lot of people feel very innately one gender mm-hmm. that may or may not correspond to the gender that they were assigned at birth. So it's it's complicated. But I feel like in Gethin, and part of this is because we're getting most of the story through the the lens of of Genli Ai, the, the main character, the visitor mm-hmm. from, from another world. Who does have a gender. Who does have a gender and who doesn't really understand Gethinian culture that well mm-hmm. most of the time. And he insists on assigning the male pronoun to everybody. So we're getting it through his lens. And, you know, it's possible that there are complexities that he's not seeing. And in fact... Le Guin did go back and write some stories, or at least one story called Coming of Age in Carhide, that where she gets to see Gethin a little bit not from Genliai's perspective. But still, it feels like, and this is a common thing with gender thought experiments, you have a gender thought experiment in which, in order to make it work, you're kind of saying that like people are just going to be what their biology dictates, and they're just going to be kind of following the path set out for them or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you muck around with the biology, but not really with the kind of culture part of of that. Yeah, exactly. And we seldom meet people who are actually questioning it within the society. Okay, so let's turn to some more contemporary stories about gender essentialism. Tell me what's going on, you know, after we have like Le Guin and after we have people like Andrea Dworkin hanging around talking about essentialism in the 70s and 80s. So like we talked about before, the 1980s and 1990s were this hotbed of, of essentialist feminism. And there were these big mainstream books by people like Deborah Tannen, who wrote You Just Don't Understand. Yes. And John Gray, who wrote Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. There was a really popular discourse basically saying that men are men and women are women and you just can't do anything about it. And like men are always going to be kind of selfish jerks and women are always going to be kind of codependent and nurturing and needy and emotionally open and kind of unable to be in charge of anything. And so kind of the apotheosis of this comes into the year 2000 when we get the movie What Women Want, starring <laughs> Mel Gibson, which— Oh, God. This oh, is, man. Okay. Yes. Continue. It's one of my hatiest movies. Um, basically, Mel Gibson is a total sexist jerk who is working in an advertising agency, and he gets a new female boss played by Helen Hunt— who wants them to market more products to women, and Mel Gibson is just like, brr, 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 brr. I'm going to be the one guy on Earth who knows what women want, how they think, and why they do those cuckoo things they do. The story of a man's man who's listening to what women want. Don't fall for a guy. I feel like my most burning memory from that film is when he finally is trying to use female products, and he's, like, shaving his legs mm-hmm. and doing, like, depilation, yeah. and he's like, oh, my gosh, this is actually really hard and painful. Oh, women are more macho than I realized. And getting in touch with his feminine side. Dad! Hi! What are you doing? Exfoliating? I'm a bitch! He puts on pantyhose and gets electrocuted. And somehow this leads to him being able to hear the thoughts of women, but not men. 
And mm-hmm. obviously, the, it's it's 2000. Nobody thinks about, can you hear the thoughts of non-binary people? Nobody worries about that. Yeah. There's, are, does he hear trans women? No. There are no trans women. Forget there's, it. There's, no, there's, no, <laughs> there's nothing but cis women and cis men in this universe. Yeah. And so he can hear the thoughts of cis women. The idea of the movie is that this basically enables him to become a more sensitive person. But what really happens is he becomes more manipulative. He plagiarizes his boss. He steals her work. He becomes better at selling shit to women. He becomes better at, like, marketing to women and, you know, kind of playing to their emotional needs because he now understands on this other level. He does save a woman from committing suicide because he can hear her suicidal thoughts. So he does one nice thing. He does one good thing, and he's kind of— he kind of makes a token effort to be more sensitive by the end. Nike, no games. Just sports. Oh. <laughs> All right, we should write that down. All right. Boy, can I be... What? Uh, well, can I be honest with you? Please do. Before I came here, I heard you were a tough, chauvinistic prick. <laughs> I didn't know you were going to be that honest. You must have looked so forward to meeting me. I was dreading it. I had this whole other person built up in my mind. Well, since we're sharing, I... Heard a few things about you, too. Oh, yes, I'm sure. I'm the man-eating bitch Darth Vader of the ad world. Verbatim. Really? All Uh. right. Well, nice to meet you. (laughs) But that's not who I am at all. Uh, Just for the record, I don't think that's who you are. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, you know, you might think that this is a movie about better male-female communication and breaking down these gender stereotypes. But in fact, the underlying assumption of the movie is that men are incapable of understanding women and that men are incapable of having any empathy or awareness of women and basically men are innately jerks, like I said before. The only way you're going to get past this if there's some kind of weird pantyhose electrocution thing <laughs> that that causes men to get magic. superpowers. Yeah. Basically, magic is the only way that men are going to be able to understand each other. And, you know, what women want was like part of a whole kind of thread of these, you know, comedies about gender that, like, show, like, oh, can men and women really understand each other? Like, when Harry met Sally... Men and women can't be friends because no man can be friends with a woman that he finds attractive. He always wants to have sex with her. So you're saying that a man can be friends with a woman he finds unattractive? No, you pretty much want to nail him, too. Or, you know, he's just not that into you. You don't ever feel like we're going against nature by not getting married? No. Going against nature is like the cat who suckled that monkey. How to lose a guy in 10 days. I could start by dating a guy and then drive him away. Doing everything girls do wrong in relationships. Down with love. He said, she said. Also, shallow howl. Really? From this moment on, whenever you meet someone in the future, you're only going to see the inner beauty, their heart, their soul. He hypnotized you. You're saying that all the pretty girls I've met lately aren't really pretty. How Larson is dating a vision only he can see. Oh, there she is. And so then he hooks up with a woman who's fat because, of course, a fat woman could never really be beautiful. She's only beautiful on the inside. So somehow Shallow Hal forgot about hot fat ladies. But even though it's starring a hot fat guy. I know. You know, it's so funny because, like, I want to ask Jack Black about that if I ever meet him. I wonder if he regrets doing that movie. But anyway, whatever. Well, yeah. We'll never know. Probably Dear Jack, <laughs> we're <laughs> wondering, how do you feel? Okay, so Charlie Jane, let's just 
sum it up here. Like, why is essentialism a problem exactly? You know, it's one of those things where, again, a lot of feminism was essentialist back in the day, and now a lot of trans-exclusionary feminism is still very essentialist. And you might think, well, it's feminism. It's good for women. But actually, a 2018 PLOS One paper found a strong correlation between believing in gender essentialism on the one hand and opposing gender equality. Interesting. Yeah, and the researchers write, gender essentialist thinking is associated with support for discrimination and inequality. So basically, you know, maybe not surprisingly, when you prop up these stereotypes about how Dr. Janice Lester can never be a starship captain, people might come away thinking that women shouldn't be starship captains and that in general, women shouldn't be in charge. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about scientific sexism. Today, I want to recommend to you an award-winning podcast called Unwell, a Midwestern Gothic mystery. Unwell is an audio fiction serial set in a fictional town in rural Ohio. The show uses ghosts, the supernatural, and other types of gothic storytelling to examine the fallibility of memory, building community and family, and being queer in the rural Midwest. It's a slow-burn mystery with occasional moments of more traditional horror. Unwell is an episodic audio fiction series, so be sure to listen from the beginning to hear the whole story. Season 3 of Unwell is currently releasing new episodes. Find Unwell on all streaming platforms. You know, previously we did an episode about scientific racism, but, you know, maybe now we should talk about scientific sexism. What, what is scientific sexism? So let's keep beating up on Western uh, metaphysics and go all the way back to the ancient Greeks. So Aristotle is famous for saying that women are basically mutilated men. You know, I think Plato probably thought that was a cool idea, too. This idea kind of persists for really hundreds of years in the West. And um, there's a really interesting book by the historian Thomas LeCur called Making Sex, where he kind of talks about how over time um, women have been portrayed versus men. And he says that in the Middle Ages, women were thought of as the inversion of men. And like a vagina is just like an inverted penis. And so like everything about women, whether it was their emotions or their bodies, was just an inversion of men. And it's interesting because as science and medicine are developing out of these ideas in the West, we see women constantly being viewed kind of as damaged versions of men or backwards versions of men. It makes me wonder about, like, all the stuff that people put on trans women because I feel like all this same rhetoric is often used against us. And, you know, it makes me feel like there's maybe internalized ancient Greek misogyny being <laughs> turned against us. It's a very long history of, of understanding the female body in this way. And if you skip ahead to the modern age, you can see how these ideas play out in medicine and science. There's a really widely understood idea called medical misogyny, which is really referring to like a whole bunch of different problems and errors that come from the idea that women are just a version of men that's kind of a crappier version. But as a result, we don't really need to study women when we do um, testing of, say, drugs, for example. 
And, you know, it's not that people who are involved in medicine and the sciences in, say, the 20th century actually believe Aristotle and are like, oh, women are damaged men. It's just that they have a kind of unconscious bias and invent all kinds of reasons like, oh, well, women might become pregnant. We don't know if drug testing on women will affect their fertility, so we should just leave women out of it. Plus, women are just men anyway. It's so amazing how long this lasted. It wasn't until 1993 that the FDA and the NIH in the United States mandated that women had to be included in clinical trials. And we're still seeing fallout from stuff like this. The anthropologist Kate Clancy has done a lot of work on this, and she's been studying how people who get periods were affected by COVID vaccines. And apparently, when COVID vaccines were going through clinical trials, a lot of these were very fast trials, nobody was really checking to see if women would have a different reaction than men. Nobody was really checking to see whether these vaccines would have an effect on, say, menstrual cycles. And indeed, it did. And so all of these people who get periods, once they started getting vaccinated, were like, uh, hello, like, this is affecting my period. And it hadn't been, it either hadn't been studied at all, or it simply hadn't been reported. And so people were getting vaccinated and then discovering, holy crap, there's like this weird thing happening with my menstrual cycle. I have no idea why. And then on Twitter, People started comparing notes. And so Kate Clancy is gathering together a ton of information about this and is going to to publish about it soon. But medical misogyny and medical sexism also lead to another problem, which is that medical issues that are specific to people with uteruses and ovaries often get ignored Or worse, it's actually blamed on psychological problems. And that's why um, endometriosis, which is incredibly painful, is often either misdiagnosed or women are just told, you're just having phantom pain, you know, you just ignore it. Um, And it's not that, like, giant chunks of tissue are growing out of control all through your internal organs. Like, don't worry. And it it still happens. You know, a lot of people who suffer from endometriosis, um, you know, just don't get diagnosed for a really long time. And, I mean, this affected me personally because uh, I was having a problem where I kept menstruating, like, for two years. And I went to doctor after doctor, and I was like, this seems weird. Like, I don't like bleeding all the time. And one doctor told me, "Ah, it's just perimenopause. Don't worry about it. And that seemed wrong to me. And so I went to another doctor who said I needed to do yoga. And then I went to another doctor. And finally, third doctor said, you know, why don't we do an MRI? And checked it out and discovered, oh, my uterus is full of tumors. And (laughs) and so they weren't deadly tumors. I my doctor assured me like it would have been fine if you'd left it. It just would have been, you know, more bleeding forever. Um, so got rid of that uterus, by the way. The story has a happy ending. Yeah, I mean, I remember that. It was super upsetting at the time and hearing you talk about it now is uh, super upsetting in the present. And like, you know, you can kind of tell what bodies are valued or or seen as valid by who gets real medical treatment and who whose needs get studied. And like, it really is true that like, you know, anything other than a cis white dude's body is considered kind of an adjunct or an add-on or just, you know... An inversion. An inversion or just like, a you know, a variation that we're just going to like, oh, you know, well, those also exist, but who, you know, who cares, right? Yeah, that's why it's so great to have people out there like Jen Gunter, who mm-hmm. is a gynecologist who has written a couple of great books like debunking myths about 
having a vagina. She has the Vagina Bible, which is a super great book. She has That's a new- my favorite kind of Bible, I'm just going to say. Yeah, mine too. <laughs> she has a new book out about menopause that I'm super excited to read. Obviously, there's a whole bunch of reasons behind this, but what if we had people who aren't cis men doing more medical experiments and more science? Might that, you know, maybe make a little bit of a difference in how these things happen? Yeah. Um, And that is another big issue. When we talk about scientific sexism, one of the things that's causing these problems is that there's misogyny in the practice of science. So you remember Kate Clancy, who I mentioned before? Mm -hmm. She's the person who's studying how COVID vaccines affected menstrual cycles. She did an amazing study back in 2014 about people experiencing sexual harassment in the field while they were doing scientific research. So whether they were going out on a boat, doing research in the ocean, or going into remote areas doing environmental science or studying animals in the field, what she did was she just surveyed women um, and asked them what they'd experienced. She surveyed 142 men and 516 women. Uh, They were working in a wide variety of fields. And of those people who were surveyed, 64% said that they had experienced sexual harassment, and 20% said that they'd been victims of sexual assault in the field. And this was especially true for younger women who were, um, you know, more at risk and also people who were starting their careers, right? So these are people who, you know, are choosing whether or not to become scientists, and they're being harassed. And, I mean, 64% experiencing harassment is an enormous number. And you have to understand, when you're out in the field, like I've, I've been out on the field um, for archaeological digs, and you're in the middle of nowhere. Like, it's not like you can go to your aunt's house and be like, oh, I need to stay here tonight, or like even call the police, you know, if it's something really bad. Like, you're stuck with these people for weeks and weeks and weeks, and it can be incredibly terrifying. So that's one reason why we see women leaving the field is just that that it's, you know, the barriers to entry are, are really tough. There was also a study that just came out um, just this year in science from a group of people at the Harvard Business School. And this one is really interesting because they analyzed biomedical patents filed between 1976 and 2010. And they're just looking at medical devices, basically, and anything related to medicine. And they found that patents that had all-female research teams were 35% more likely than all-male teams to focus on women's health. So, in other words, just having women there means that you're suddenly going to get more medical interventions and medical devices for women. And these researchers called this an inventor gender gap. And they estimated that since 1976, we've missed out on thousands and thousands of female-focused inventions that could have helped people medically. Man, this is giving me a flashback to that book that you and I did back in the day, She's Such a Geek, where we kind of talked about cis women and trans women in the sciences and tech and geeky fields. And just like the stories that we were getting from people about the harassment that they dealt with, but the microaggressions, the macroaggressions, and just all the stuff that people do to try to push, you know, women and trans people out of the sciences. It's just, it's horrifying. Yeah, everything from small things like women being told that they can't wear a skirt when they're in the field to, you know, really major things, like you said, like being told that they're too stupid to Mm -hmm. do science. There was some really, really heinous stuff in there. So all that is going on. But meanwhile, there's another strand of scientific sexism. Evolutionary psychology. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, evolutionary uh, psychology. My hadiest. This continues to be a, gro- uh, a growth area in the practice of scientific sexism. I think you mean a tumor in the practice <laughs> of science. It's still growing. It's and, growing. And it's, uh, and it's not scientific. It's, it's a pseudoscience. It's very pseudo. But this is a field that wants to explain our psychology, everything from like our hopes and fears to our desires and our preferences, um, as a result of our evolutionary history during the Paleolithic. On so the savanna. On the savanna. Well, and it's funny because they always often say the the African Paleolithic, because of course humans were scattered all over the planet. Um, there were lots and lots of people in you know East Asia that you know were were hanging around, but we're not interested in them. We're only only interested in this one type of uh, Paleolithic Man. experience. So basically, I mean, this fits in very much with with gender essentialism because a lot of evolutionary psychologists really believe. Um, that we don't have agency when it comes to a lot of our feelings and actions and desires. Not that we can't control them, but that we feel these impulses that will never go away. There's simply no way to get rid of them because they're built in through evolution. And they lead to men just naturally having to be dominant and and shitty. And that's just, it's just nature. And like cis men are just, they, that's just what they got to do. Yeah, it's always used to justify male and female stereotypes in a really pernicious way. And a lot of this gets distilled in a 1990s book by Robert Wright called The Moral Animal. So this book is coming out right at the same time as you're seeing, you know, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. And in this book, he uh, he's very interested in showing how humans are similar to non-human animals. So he gives us a lot of little sort of homilies and and just so stories about how animals, uh, non-human animals, behave, and then compares them to humans. And so I'm going to read you a quote from him. Um, and just a quick trigger warning: um, this is going to deal with rape. So if you don't want to hear about that, just skip ahead a couple minutes. He says, "A female." in sheerly Darwinian terms, is better off mating with a good rapist, a big, strong, sexually aggressive male. Her male offspring will then be more likely to be big, strong, and sexually aggressive. So female resistance should be favored by natural selection as a way to avoid having a son who is an inept rapist. Now, this is a story about orangutans, but he turns it into a parable about people. And it's very much intended to kind of illustrate the way men and women romance each other, that men should be the aggressors and women should be reluctant because only the most aggressive aggressor is really the best for the mate. So basically, there's no men, there's no cis men who aren't rapists. There's just really good rapists and kind of like crappy rapists. crappy rapists like it's just the difference is how good you are at 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 rape basically one of the phrases that evolutionary psychologists like to use is they'll say that something is an evolutionary dead end so a non-raping dude is an evolutionary dead end so when his book came out, um, it became incredibly controversial, obviously, um, for, you know, all the reasons you might expect. And Time magazine in 1994 did a cover story about this book with the headline, Infidelity, Dash, It Might Be in Our Genes. So, of course, Wright went on Charlie Rose, um, where he said this. But in general, women have more trouble separating sex from affection, whereas men sometimes have a dualistic approach that one I'd be interested in sexually, that one I might like to marry. And, it, and it's true that it, it seems as if, this is not a proven theory, but, but there's good evidence that one of the ways 
men put a woman in one class or another, unconsciously that is, is to take into account uh, whether she seems to be highly promiscuous. Men do not tend to find highly promiscuous women attractive as you know, as future wives. And, that, and that's controversial for obvious yeah. reasons. I'm not saying okay. it's good. I'm not All saying we can't fight but, it. Uh, uh, I just need to go soak my head in a <laughs> bowl of warm clam chowder now for like the rest of the day. Yeah. So this was a very influential work of evolutionary psychology. And Mari Ruti, who is a University of Toronto professor and the author of a book called The Age of Scientific Sexism, um, which came out in 2015, um, she talks about right, and she says it's amazing how much of evolutionary psychology seems to be about using science to justify returning to 1950s gender roles or maybe even Victorian gender roles. I mean, it's interesting how much Wright actually talks about how Victorian gender roles, of course, had problems. But he says, you know, the Victorian ideal of repression actually had a good side because, you know, it kind of prevented all the rampant raping <laughs> that oh my God. was going on. But I want to read a, a quote from Ruti uh, about evolutionary psychology and kind of the problems that she finds with it, you know, as a critical analyst. So she says, at the core of evolutionary psychology is the belief that every detail of human romantic behavior, which is often called mating behavior, can be explained by the evolutionary imperative to produce as many viable offspring as possible. That is, romance is a matter of sex, and sex is invariably a matter of making babies. And it doesn't seem to much matter how the babies are made as long as they get made successfully. When it comes to homosexuality, evolutionary psychology is truly in the Middle Ages. For a theory that reduces all human sexual behavior to the reproductive impulse obviously cannot account for same-sex desire except as an evolutionary dead end. So basically anything that's not heinous and awful and just like Hobbesian is an evolutionary dead end. It's just all, you know, we're living in, a, we're just an endless series of cul-de-sacs. It's basically the idea that we are all in transactional relationships with the opposite sex. Man. So you might be able to have a, maybe a nice intra-gender relationship, but intergender relationships are these transactional experiences. And again, we don't have a lot of agency over how it happens, right? There's there's this idea that you can repress your impulses. And this is something that Steven Pinker talks about a lot, too. He's a, a Harvard evolutionary psychologist who's quite well known. And he talks a lot about, you know, well, we can act against our um, impulses and act against the way we've evolved, but we can't ever change how we feel, basically. Yeah, and what's really jumping out at me here is is that much like those essentialist feminists we talked about, these people probably see themselves as liberal or at least somewhat as like enlightened, but they're really reinforcing these super crappy kind of right-wing ideas about men, women, and like there's nobody else. Yeah, in fact, one of the things that I love about um, Mari Ruti's book is that she talks about how evolutionary psychologists are super invested in how scientific their work is, and they often will accuse their detractors of being creationists or living in a fantasy world. And she's like, but it's strange how similar evolutionary psychology's views of gender are with Christian views. And they really sound like conservative Christian rhetoric. And so they're pretending to be scientific, but they actually are secretly these, these really reactionary Christians. I feel like that happens a lot. And so, you know, we've been talking about men and women and the opposite sex and stuff, but how do trans people fit into all this? 
That's a super good question. Jeffrey Miller is a really uh, well-known evolutionary psychologist who is at University of New Mexico, and um, he wrote this book called The Mating Mind. And he actually has some thoughts about this, uh, which he shared in 2019 on the conservative YouTube channel called The Rubin Report. There's a much larger group of people who I think are using trans issues as a kind of wedge to destroy uh, the gender binary or to kind of muddy the waters. Male and female are evolved strategies that exist because over thousands of generations, they were like the paths to successful reproduction. Um, if you're not clearly male and functioning as a male, or you're not clearly female and functioning as a female, you're, you're a genetic dead end. So selection hammers against any ambiguity there. So it's not surprising that the vast majority of humans alive today clearly identify as one sex or the other. Mm -hmm. And so he talks about, like, challenging the gender binary as though that's, like, the worst thing we could possibly do. I know. He's, again, he's using this term evolutionary dead end. And he's very careful, um, I should say, before this clip that we have to say, like, you know, he's not against the idea of people, you know, standing up for their rights to be transgender. But you know, just descriptively and scientifically, they are an evolutionary dead end. Some of my best friends are transgender. <laughs> he doesn't even say that, I actually. Know, like, So he doesn't even take it that far. I'm not transphobic, but dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, his comments really remind me of, you know, a lot of turf rhetoric and a lot of the stuff we've been hearing from some of these people who are pushing these theories about rapid onset gender dysphoria, which we talked about in an earlier episode. Yeah, I mean, I think that rapid onset gender dysphoria, you know, people like Abigail Schreier, who just wrote a book called Irreversible Damage, which is about how, you know, trans children are this kind of abomination. You know, this is all playing into the same school of thought. Like, it all grows out of evolutionary psychology and this idea that there's a scientific validity to these gender roles. Like, it's not just uh, a moral issue. It's not just a philosophical issue. It is just descriptive science. And, you know, the other thing that we're seeing, you know, to wrap this up, I would say in the modern day that's growing out of evolutionary psychology is stuff like James Damore's famous Google memo, which Ugh. was called Google's Ideological Echo Chamber. Um, it actually got James Damore fired after a long controversy. And basically, he was a, an engineer at Google and wrote this, you know, eight or nine page memo about how Google's diversity policies in terms of hiring women and BIPOC to uh, elevated positions in the company were doomed to fail because evolutionary psychology shows that women can't be in these leadership positions. And he has a section of his memo where he talks about how women generally have a stronger interest in people rather than things, which is why they might not be very good software engineers, and that also women tend to be more neurotic overall. And so they're going to have more anxiety and stress. And so that might explain why women are always complaining all the time about sexism because they're just more stressed, you know? They're just more stressed in general. 
And um, the thing that was so funny was that, you know, after this memo came out, of course, people were were freaking out about it. It was passed around online a lot. And there was a great article uh, by Megan Multaney in Wired uh, where she talked to some of the evolutionary psychologists that Damore cited in his memo. And um, even they didn't agree with it. They said he'd actually misapplied their research and that he'd taken these broad general studies across huge portions of the population and tried to apply them to this really, really specific, narrow example of the Google workplace. And they were like, that just doesn't work. Like, Google is already selecting for women who are interested in things. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to get this thing of like, well, women are people-oriented. It's like, dude, they work at Google. Like, they like like tech. Um, That's not the issue. Yeah, it's this thing where, like, people are like, well, it's science. You can't argue with science. But part of how you get pseudoscience, and we see this again and again in scientific racism, scientific sexism, and scientific transphobia, you get this thing where people use science to confirm their priors. And their priors are always these, like, backward-ass stereotypes that they've decided to cling to that are just, you know, it's like, well, I set out to prove that me having whatever I want and doing whatever I feel like is natural and good according to science. And like, well, of course, you know, you can't question my methods because, you know, it's just, it's ridiculous. Yeah. One of the tricks that they'll use in their rhetoric is to say, this isn't a moral observation. This is just a realistic observation. Realistic. And, you know, but somehow these quote-unquote realistic observations always wind up sounding a lot like Christianity. So, you know, funny how that is in a Western context that like our so-called science, when it's pseudoscience, winds up sounding like the most popular Western religion. So basically, it's bad science. And And they should feel bad. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for listening. You've been hearing another episode of Our Opinions Are Correct. You can help support the show by uh, becoming a patron on Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash our opinions are correct. And we give you audio extras and we give you little essays and we talk to you and we say hi. You can also follow us on Twitter at OOACpod. And thank you so much to our amazing producer, Veronica Simonetti. And thanks to Chris Palmer for the music. Talk to you in a couple weeks. Bye. Bye.